Hello, my name is Thomas Berezovsky, and I'm the director of Two Journeys Ministry. If you find Andy Davis's content helpful and you want to help us disseminate free gospel-centered content, please prayerfully consider donating to Two Journeys. All end of your gifts will be matched up to $20,000. Please visit the donate page on twojourneys.org for more information on how to donate. Thank you. Hello and welcome to the Two Journeys podcast. This is Journeys from the Past, and my name is Andy Davis. The purpose of this podcast is to inspire listeners to courageous sacrificial actions to make progress in the two journeys, the internal journey of holiness and the external journey of evangelism and missions by learning the stories of their brothers and sisters in the past. Now we've come to the final podcast we're doing in our, our grand overview of redemptive history, especially the last 2,000 years of church history. We come to the end of the story, the end of the, of the 20th century on into the 21st century, and specifically a focus on the explosion of missions. And as a way of introduction of this final phase, I just want to remind you of the prophecy, I would actually more call it the decree, that Jesus Christ gave in Matthew 24, talking about the end of the world, the end of the age, he said in Matthew 24, verse 14, this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. It's not merely a prophecy because Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and he is decreeing that this will happen. There's such a certainty to it. The gospel will be preached in all nations as a testimony and then the end will most certainly come. So that decree by the king has been worked out now over 20 centuries and is continuing to this present day. Now the spread of the gospel from Jerusalem, the upper room of, of Jerusalem, when the Holy Spirit was poured out in tongues of fire 40 days after Christ was crucified, the spread of the gospel, the advance of the kingdom of God, the growth of the church of Jesus Christ has moved in a mysterious, hidden sort of way. Jesus told a parable in Matthew 13:33, the kingdom of heaven is like yeast, which a woman took and hid in a large amount of flour until it worked all through the dough. There is a hidden permeation of the kingdom of God over 20 centuries. It's the kind of thing that could easily get lost in the din and, and the rise and fall of nations and empires and become, uh, it seems, a minor footnote in some of the eras. But we know it is actually the purpose of history, that individual sinners would find salvation through faith in Christ. But Jesus likened it to the spread of yeast which is hidden in a large amount of flour until it permeates the entire dough. There's a chemical reaction that goes at the molecular level, and it's invisible to see, but if you put a lump of dough on the counter uh, and it's got the right temperature, it's warm enough, you come back and it's just larger. It's blowing up like a balloon, and then when you bake it, there are all those air pockets that make bread light and fluffy. That's what happens, the permeation. And so the kingdom of God has spread. And, and for the most part, day after day, it's not going to be noted by the secular media, CNN, Fox News, uh, the websites are not going to cover the spread of the gospel. 
They have other matters, national and international matters, that will seize their attention. But we know that it is the most significant thing that ever happens every single day, spread of the gospel, the spread of the kingdom. Another way of discussing it, uh, Jesus told a parable in Mark chapter 4, the kingdom of God is like uh, a man who scatters seed on the ground. Night and day, whether he sleeps or gets up, the seed sprouts and grows, though he knows not how. All by itself, the soil produces grain. First the stalk, then the head, then the full kernel in the head. Then as soon as the grain is ripe, he puts the sickle to it because the harvest has come. Again, that shows that the advance of the kingdom of God happens in ways we don't understand. We can't fathom how it works. It just does work. And so the gospel has moved from 120 believers in the upper room to literally hundreds and hundreds of millions of people around the world today who claim to be Christians. It's really amazing and astonishing. In heaven, we're going to have a chance, I believe, to look back at every detail of that advance. We are going to learn how the plant grew. We're going to find out how the yeast permeated. We're going to see God's sovereign activity day after day in heavenly review. There is depicted for us in Revelation 7 a multitude greater than anyone could count from every tribe, language, people, and nation standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. They're wearing white robes and they're holding palm branches in their hands and they're crying out, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And so this is the great harvest of souls from every tribe, language, people, and nation. Then one of the elders asked John of that multitude, these in the white robes, who are they? And where did they come from? Now that's the question. Those questions will be answered in heavenly retrospect as we look back over centuries of gospel advance to find out who the individual saints were and how they got to heaven. That's going to be a marvelous story. Now as we get to the 20th century, we... Uh, come to an explosion of missions, of evangelical missions. After the great century, the 19th century called the great century of missions, it's continued even greater in the 20th century. And the great events that we covered last time, the, the World War I, World War II, uh, the rise of liberalism, of scientific materialism, atheism, all of these worldviews and philosophies, even in the last half of the 20th into the 21st century, the rise of militant Islam, fundamentalist Islam, uh, all of these things have hindered but have not stopped the spread of the gospel. And so, missionaries have gone out and have taken the gospel and have done an incredible job moving from a very narrowly constricted geographical region at the end of the 18th century, the time of William Carey, just northern Europe along the eastern seaboard of the United States. That's where Protestants were at that time, maybe a little bit colonies in, in Australia, uh, to literally every political nation on earth having some kind of a church. I think there's 196 nations represented in the United Nations. Every single one of them has evangelical churches now. But this uh, movement of missions has advanced through some key leaders who have given to the church better understanding of what the Great Commission is all about, better understanding of what it means to make disciples, baptizing them, 
and teaching them to obey everything that Christ has commanded. What did Jesus mean when he said, this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations? What did that word nations mean? How do we understand it? And so four key missions leaders have helped Protestants, have helped evangelicals understand our obligations and our approach to missions, starting with William Carey uh, at the end of the 18th century, as we mentioned, who wrote an inquiry into the obligation of Christians to use means for the propagation of the gospel, the spread of the gospel among the heathen. And what that meant is every Christian is under obligation to see to the spread of the gospel. Some will be like spelunkers going down into a dark hole of heathenism, as William Carey said, and others holding the ropes. But every Christian is under an obligation to see that the gospel goes forth to the ends of the earth. So that was his contribution, William Carey, at the end of the 18th century. Then along comes Hudson Taylor in the midst of that great century, the 19th century. And he was a pioneer of faith-based missions, but his contribution especially was uh, in founding the faith-based mission called the China Inland Mission, CIM. And he believed that it was not enough for the gospel to come to the port cities along China, the edges of uh, the Chinese empire, but they had to go inland to the provinces that had no uh, witness at all. And so this showed a geographical courage, a geographical advance, moving from enclaves, uh, Protestant enclaves, mission enclaves in cities like Hong Kong and and, um, uh, Nanking and other cities like that along the coast to go to the teeming millions in the inland regions that have never heard of Christ. And so over... 50 years of of leadership of the China Inland Missions, Hudson Taylor raised up missionaries and money to see to it that every inland region of China would have a witness to the gospel of Christ, Hudson Taylor. Then the third great leader uh, came and did his work at the beginning of the 20th century, and that's Cameron Townsend. Cameron Townsend founded a mission called the Wycliffe Bible Translators, and he was a missionary in Latin America down in South America, and he was doing most of his mission work in Spanish. Now, Spanish was the language of the nation, but it was not the tribal language or the heart language, the mother tongue of the peoples uh, that he was seeking to reach. And so the the tribal leaders, the village leaders would understand Spanish and understand a lot of what Cameron Townsend as a missionary was saying to them. But at one point, one of the missionaries, or sorry, one of the... uh, one of the nationals, one of the people he was trying to reach with the gospel said, if your God is so smart, how come he doesn't speak our language? And so he realized the need to translate the scriptures into the heart language of the people they were seeking to reach. And not just with language, but also with a sense of the culture, that there needed to be an acculturation of the gospel message. There was a a timeless transcultural message of the gospel but it had to be dressed up in language and cultural garb so that people could understand it. And so Wycliffe Bible translators began sending out linguistic experts to translate the scriptures into the heart language of the people around the world. And so, again, every tribe, language, people, and nation had to be reached. Cameron Townsend with Wycliffe Bible translators. The last of these four great missions visionaries and uh, pioneer leaders was Donald McGavern, who was a missionary in India. 
And what Donald McGavran saw in the middle part of the 20th century as he was ministering in India was that India as a political nation was made up of literally hundreds and hundreds of people groups or nations within a nation. And those people groups, all of them had their own culture. All of them had, many of them had their own language, although there were some that it were unified by language, but still were different people groups. And so a people group uh, became a defined focus of missions. Uh, there are different definitions of a people group, but one is, the, is uh, a unified approach to the basic problems of life, namely how we eat, how we dress, architecture, how we do business, how we train our children. Those things are handled in a cohesive way within one people group. And so McGavran started to identify different people groups in India. And there's not a nation on earth that's more diverse concerning the variety of people groups in the nation of India. So he was in exactly the right place to identify the concept of people groups. Since that time, Protestant missionaries or mission agencies, uh, evangelical missions, have sought to reach not merely political nations, which have already been done, as I said, all those almost 200 nations in the United Nations have been reached, but Christ hasn't come yet. So he's not satisfied. Matthew 24, 14 says, this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, ethne. And so it seems that missiologists have zeroed in on this idea of a people group. And therefore we're looking for unreached people groups, UPGs. And sometimes missiologists will add an additional U, unengaged unreached people groups, UUPGs. So these would be the people farthest from the gospel. Not only have they never heard of Christ, they are not anywhere near, geographically near anyone who has heard of Christ. There, there is no even effort, organized effort, toward reaching them with the gospel. Now, there are different numbers of unengaged, unreached people groups. It's all an estimate. It's hard to know where to draw the line sometimes in a complex society. But there may be as many as 13,000 people groups on planet Earth. And the unengaged, unreached people groups may be somewhere between 3,000 to 5,000 or maybe a little bit more, depending on how you define reached or engaged. And so that has become the focus of the unfinished task. Now, as we look at the history of the 20th century, two world wars did not stop the spread of the gospel. Uh, and then, if anything, it expanded the horizons of some uh, people in the West who were fighting in the jungles of the South Pacific or in the Philippines or in different places in Southeast Asia. And then some of them would go back to Irian Jaya, Papua New Guinea, different places later as missionaries uh, because their uh, vision, their horizon had been expanded by their military service. One thing definitely happened across the 20th century with missions, however, is that colonialism came to an end. And sadly, a lot of times missionaries in the 19th century and on to the early part of the 20th century were instruments of colonialism. Um, that was especially true in the British Empire, but it could also be true of, of American or other European missionaries who would go out from Belgium or from Germany uh, or from France uh, with uh, the intention of spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ, but there was also a political agenda as well. Not much different in some respects from the Jesuits and the Roman Catholic missionaries that went out in the name of a powerful uh, political pope.
And so with the end of World War II, colonialism effectively came to an end or would soon thereafter. India was reverted to home rule. Uh, many of the smaller nations in Africa uh, were uh, set free from British rule and just became part of the Commonwealth of British Nations, uh, Kenya be an example, etc. And so missionaries ceased being instruments of colonialism. Uh, instead, there was an evangelical vision of sharing the gospel with the whole world, with individuals around the world. Billy Graham was a, especially a vision, uh, a visionary leader for world evangelization. Uh, he would go and preach the simple gospel in major cities around the world, but also was organizing uh, movements and conferences, getting evangelical leaders from all the nations on earth where there were evangelical leaders and gathering together under the banner of the gospel of Jesus Christ, asking the question, how can we finish the work that's yet to be done? The Lausanne Conference in 1974, uh, which Billy Graham was a key leader, helped to catalyze this new missionary movement. In July of 1974, 2,300 evangelical leaders from 150 nations convened in Lausanne, Switzerland, for the first International Congress on World Evangelization. They crystallized the mission itself and the work still to be done. The goal of world evangelization was, by all possible means, and at the earliest possible time, that every person will have the opportunity to hear, understand, and receive the good news. That's in the Lausanne Covenant. The remaining task at that time, 1974, was daunting. More than 2.7 billion people which is more than two-thirds of all humanity at that time, have yet to be evangelized. We are ashamed, they said, that so many have been neglected. It is a standing rebuke to us and to the whole church, end quote. In the minds of the Lausanne movement, the whole church meant every single Christian all over the world, not just in the West. So not just England, America, Germany, Holland, etc., but Christians all over the world. So the resources for reaping the harvest were to be found in the harvest itself. The people and the money were to be found among former nations that had been the focus of missions. This meant that more and more non-Western missionaries would be taking upon themselves the responsibility of winning lost people. This has happened more and more. In my church in Durham, North Carolina, First Baptist Church, we've had the privilege of knowing a wonderful family of sisters from Kazakhstan who had themselves been led to faith in Christ in their home city of Almaty in Kazakhstan by a missionary couple from Korea. So Korean evangelicals came there and led them to faith in Christ. And so God sovereignly has orchestrated an increasing missionary passion among people from other nations to reach um, unreached people groups with the gospel, and that's very, very exciting. Now, the success of the gospel at this point in history really is astonishing. From that upper room, 120 believers, till now, it's amazing. The total number of people in the world claiming to be Christian is maybe 2.3 billion. 2.3 billion people claiming to be Christians. Now, of those, unfortunately, 50% uh, an estimated 50% of those, estimated 1.15 billion, are Roman Catholics, and many are nominal at best, not holding to an evangelical understanding of the gospel. 
Now, only Judgment Day will reveal what percentage of them were actually born again. So also the true spiritual condition of the 260 million Orthodox Christians is difficult to evaluate, such as Eastern Orthodox in Russia and the Balkan nations, etc., in Greece. Many people, uh, citizens of those nations, are also members of the Orthodox churches, but many that I've spoken to have a very limited knowledge of the gospel. I remember two brothers that were operating a hotel in Corinth. Uh, I stayed at their hotel. They were both Orthodox Christians. But when I said to them, of course, you realize your city is famous all around the world because of 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. They had no idea what I was talking about. They had very little understanding of the gospel, but they would consider them Christian, get, consider them some, themselves Christians uh, they were Orthodox. So it's, again, hard to know how many of them are actually born again. The most Christianized continent in the world is Africa. About 26% of the world's Christians live in sub-Saharan Africa. But estimates based on demographic analysis, including birth rates, believe that by the year 2060, that number will climb to as high as 40%, as high as 40% evangelicals in the world will be in sub-Saharan Africa. There are an estimated half billion Christians who would call themselves charismatic. That's really quite remarkable. Half a billion charismatic Christians following the explosive effects of the Pentecostal revival that began in Azusa Street, in the mission of Azusa Street in Los Angeles on April 9, 1906. Half a billion of that number. Yet there is an overwhelming amount of work still to be done before Jesus' prophecy of the gospel being preached in the whole world, the testimony of all nations will be fulfilled. Since the rise of the nation-state after the Thirty Years' War in the middle of the 17th century, the term nations has been commonly understood politically and geographically. But with the fall of the Iron Curtain and the amazing spread of the gospel at the end of the 20th century, all the nations, as I said, have been reached, and still there's work to be done. And so we understand the remaining work as unreached people groups, the need to take the gospel to all those who have yet to hear it. Uh, the Joshua Project, uh, which is, you can go online and, and find out where they think um, the mission's effort is in terms of unreached people groups, uh, they have uh, broken down uh, people into five categories of reached. There are unreached, unengaged, minimally reached, superficially reached, partially reached, and significantly reached. And according to the Joshua Project, they have the present number of unreached people groups as 7,400, comprising 41% of the world's population, 3.2 billion people. So there's a lot of work still to be done. Now, as we've come to the end of this survey of church history and the history of the world, with all the work still to be done, it is amazing to see in big picture relief, the journey that the Church of Jesus Christ has traveled from the upper room in Jerusalem with those 120 believers to the present level of splendor. In every generation, the Holy Spirit sees to it that the fame of Jesus Christ will not die. He actually ensures that Christ's name is the greatest name on earth, despite the fact that no infant is ever born into the world knowing anything about him at all. The Holy Spirit has orchestrated the protection of Christ's name and of the truths of the gospel that is the power of God for the salvation of individuals in every generation. The Holy Spirit has worked across 20 centuries to defend the gospel and to move human messengers to spread it 
in their families and in their neighborhoods and in the course of their trades and lives to those of other places. The Holy Spirit has defended the Church of Jesus Christ from false doctrines such as Arianism, Pelagianism, semi-Pelagianism, liberalism, and all other heresies. The Spirit has secretly and mysteriously orchestrated the minds of mighty potentates to make rulings favorable to the spread of the gospel in their nations. He has controlled the economic conditions of nations to create specific circumstances that his sovereign will thought best. He has sovereignly maneuvered his messengers to cross forbidding mountain ranges, raging rivers, and stark deserts to reach terrifying barbarian tribes in dark forests beyond, or to get on sailing vessels and travel, uh, in the case of John Patton, 16,000 nautical miles to reach the New Hebrides Islands and the South Pacific, facing likely death at the hands of cannibals. He has moved missionaries to pack their belongings in their own coffins and travel to the west coast of the dark continent, expecting not to survive more than 18 months in the disease-infected jungles. And most significantly, he has caused Christian parents all over the world to raise up the next generation, their own children, in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, pouring the gospel of Jesus Christ into their hearts and their mother tongue from infancy. I would say the overwhelming majority of the saints that will stand around the throne in heaven were brought to faith in Christ by at least one of their parents, maybe two-thirds to three-quarters or more around the world. The dimensions and details of the achievements of the triune God in this astonishing journey will not be scraped into the trash heap of forgetfulness when the new universe comes. Rather, each and every redeemed child of God will receive an eternal heavenly education in what was done to bring them there. And God will be greatly glorified in their resurrected hearts as they fall down and worship Him again and again as new aspects of His glory woven into the tapestry of history are revealed to them in wave upon wave of heavenly review. So as we conclude today, I want you to go into your week knowing that there is nothing new under the sun. Whatever it is you are going through, there are Christians who have come before you, who have dealt with similar struggles, and through the power of Christ have overcome them, and you will as well. And we also know from Scripture that God went ahead of each of them and prepared good works for them to do, and they did them for the glory of God. And in the same way, God has gone ahead of you and has prepared good works for you to do for His glory. So go and do them by the same power of the Spirit that was in each of them. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification, and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.